Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. However, not all interviews feature public company management teams. Every once in a while, I get the chance to interview industry experts, and this is one of those interviews. Now, if you listen to this podcast, there's probably a good chance you listen to other investing podcasts. So you may know Ted as the host of the Capital Allocators podcast. But if you don't know about Capital Allocators, you really need to check it out. Before I started my own podcast, I listened to a lot of different investing podcasts. But like many other podcasters, once I started, my limited free time forced me to become a little more selective with the podcasts I listened to. And Capital Allocators is one of the very few investing podcasts I try not to miss. If the name Ted Seides rings a bell, but you just can't place it. Ted placed a charitable wager with Warren Buffett that pitted the S&P against five funds of hedge funds. It was a friendly 10-year wager that ended in 2017, and the subject really has been beaten to death, so we won't cover it here. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Ted Seides. It would be really great for you to share your background with the IWTB listeners. Sure. I was a Yale undergraduate and my first job out of college, I ended up working for David Swenson, who manages Yale's endowment. And that was back in 1992. So not very many people knew who he was, uh, nor did I really. And I stayed there for five years and really got my formative education in investing very broadly defined because it was an endowment. My particular focus then was on uh, public equities. It was the the managers that Yale invested in, both the U.S. internationally. I also spent a little bit of time managing their bond portfolio, which was an in, internal passive plus. Um, and then after five years, went off to business school at Harvard, thinking I wanted to be a stock picker and did that in my summer job. It was the summer of 1998. I worked for a fantastic uh, value-oriented hedge fund that was long metal bending companies and short this little company called Amazon that was losing money every day. <laughs> and watched the stock go from, I think it was 40 to 260 in the course of one summer. Um, so I wasn't sure if stock picking was going to be the right thing for me. <laughs> and uh, came out of business school and worked for another one of, actually two, over two years, two different uh, Yale managers. One of them was a small leverage buyout shop. And then I joined J.H. Whitney, which at the time was, it was the first venture capital firm in the U.S. And they were really expanding and becoming a, one of the the first sort of trying to be one of the first larger broad-based alternative asset managers. And they had hired a terrific group of people that have gone on to do really incredible things. It also coincided with 2000. And when the internet bubble rolled over and the venture capital funds had trouble, there were all kinds of performance issues in some of the products and the, the fund uh, the firm still lasted, but it really went back to its roots. And so I took that as an opportunity to get back into multi-manager investing. And by then, David had written his book and my obscure background all of a sudden became well known because I was the first person or the only person at the time who had worked for him who was now out doing this, not uh, sitting as a CIO at a nonprofit. And I had an opportunity to start a fund that was a hedge fund of funds that also seeded new hedge funds. And I saw it as, well, if I have to focus on one asset class, I might as well focus in the one that's the broadest based. And that became Protege Partners, which we started the fund in July of 2002. Uh, I left in September of 2015. And there's lots of lessons and stories in that. But among other things, it led me to writing a book about some of the lessons I had learned for startup hedge funds to be successful, aptly named So You Want to Start a Hedge Fund. 
And that led me to getting interviewed on a couple podcasts, which led to the formation of my podcast and and uh, still doing some investment work and thinking about what I'm going to do next. That's great. Uh, your podcast is something that is it's obviously something that I listen to a lot. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this program. I would love to hear the story behind the thought process and the decision-making process behind capital allocators. And, and also would just love to have like your pitch of what capital allocators is so that some of my listeners, if they want another really solid podcast to listen to, they can go listen to, to yours. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. Well, it started on a chairlift, a ski chairlift. And I know you're familiar with that from coming from Colorado. Yeah. And there's a, there's a story that weaves through it. It's actually, I wrote it up and it's available on my website, capitalallocatorspodcast.com called Origins of an Investing Podcast. Uh, but I would say that it was a time in my life um, where it was one of the first things that I did with no particular objective and no particular goal. I just thought it would be fun. Yeah. Uh, so I had been interviewed on, on you know, we talked earlier on, on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's po fantastic podcast, Invest Like the Best. And I wanted to spend some of my time running around talking to my old friends in the endowment community that I hadn't had time to keep up with while I was managing Protege Partners. And so I thought this would be a fun way to do it. And I had no idea what, if anything, would happen. So I recorded, I think, three interviews. And the first one, I lost the recording for six hours because I had no familiarity with the technology. And I emailed it out to friends. Patrick posted it on his feed. But it, at that time, he didn't have nearly as wide of a listener base as he did now. And so some people listened to it. And I just kind of kept going. Um, next to no marketing. And the, the podcast, it's called Capital Allocators. And the original intent was to interview chief investment officers of large pools of capital. So think of endowments, foundations, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and talk about who they are and how they got to be where, where they are and how they think about investing and then how they do that process, which is fairly opaque to most people that are not in that little boutique uh, industry. And so that's kind of the core of it. And I would say about a third or more of the episodes are that. And then I'll also interview investment managers that are people that I know that some of those people really like about their process. And then another third are anything I think might be interesting that will help the people in those seats be better at their job. So I've interviewed everything from you know, decision-making theorists in the investment business. People know Michael Mobison, uh, who's just a terrific writer about investment process, to Annie Duke, a famous uh, former professional poker player to people in the sports industry or writers and and just whatever might be interesting that's interdisciplinary and can help a chief investment officer kind of frame how they think about either managing the money or managing their team, managing people. And that's that's what the podcast's been. And it's it's grown a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Where do you want it to go from here? Like five years from now, do you think you'll still be doing podcasting? And and what what do you want it to look like? Your podcast, just yeah. continue I mean, doing what you're doing. The fun part of it for me is ex is exactly that absence of a direct goal because I never viewed it as a business. And I've dabbled with it. People are asking me all the time, oh, is this a business? And I, I don't see it. I don't see a real revenue model for a boutique podcast of my size. And I've dabbled a little bit and not had great success in sort of converting it to anything commercial. Um, but the nice thing about that is it just allows me to go wherever I want with it. I don't know if I'll be doing it in five years. I, I'd be surprised. 
I think that it'll, at some point, it'll have a natural end of its life. And the nice thing about my conversations is that most of them are, I don't want to say timeless, but they're not time sensitive. Yeah. So when you interview, say, Scott Malpass, the, the chief investment officer in Notre Dame, who's been in the seat for 30 years, there's very little that we talked about that he won't say the same thing three years from now. And there's tremendous lessons in that conversation, but it, it really, the, the episodes themselves can last a lot longer than my need to keep putting out new ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've continued to do that just because currently I have time to do it. Uh, I've been doing it once a week. I think that pace is too much. It's too much content for most people to digest. And But I just keep having really interesting people I want to talk to. And as long as I do, I'll keep putting them out. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and so- what are one or two interviews that really stand out for you? Yeah, you know, I've done almost 100. I've done probably 96, and it's like 96 children. So I have a little bit of a hard time picking out. Um, so I would I would say there's three that I could point to. One, the one I did with Scott Malpass at Notre Dame was exactly my image of what I thought the podcast could be, which is this like long time horizon a long interview talking about all the different iterations from when he first got there to today. So that was the core of it. Uh, I've done two with Andy Duke and those are incredibly interesting because it's really applied decision-making theory uh, with someone that was really fun to meet and has become a very good friend. And so that's just been really fun. And the third, I would say, is the single most listened to one. And that's with a guy named Michael Schwimmer. And Michael was a former professional baseball player who worked his way up through the minor leagues and through that process found this gap in the treatment of minor leaguers compared to major leaguers. And he created an investment fund that buys equity stakes effectively in the future careers of minor leaguers and then uses advanced data analytics to try to increase the probability of success of those minor leaguers becoming major leaguers. Huh. And so there's this just fascinating, I love baseball and sports. And so that was fun. And there's, and it's a real investment fund. It's a private equity investment fund that's had great success in a you know, new niche that he discovered and is just the right guy to be implementing. So that was just a fantastic one. And, and I think the crossover from baseball and sports and investing drew from different audiences and has become the single most downloaded episode. You, you mentioned you didn't start the podcast as a business or you didn't have initially didn't have goals or aspirations to make it commercial, but are there challenges that, that you've experienced as a podcaster frustrations that you've experienced? Well, that's certainly the biggest one. I mean, it, it has been a tremendous amount of fun and I've had a chance to meet and continue to meet just really fun, interesting people and learn about certain skill sets that apparently I have that I had no idea I did and really just interviewing and it's been reflected in a terrific way back to me, but it's takes a lot of time and it, you know, it doesn't pay any bills. (laughs) Um, And, you know, mine certainly has a lot more success if you measure that by, by downloads and audience and feedback and goodwill than I ever anticipated it could. But, you know, I have to pay bills too. And so the stress comes from, well, what do I do? This is fun, but it takes time. And if it's taking time, it takes time away from work. And so how do you integrate the two together? Uh, Which I haven't quite solved for yet. So that either means that, you know, the podcast eventually just goes away because I have to go actually work again. Um, Or I can find a way to make this part of my future work. And there is, there should be a a lot of value add from it uh, for an investment business, but 
you just have to find the right fit. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say if there's another one, it's technology. So, you know, I created a website alongside of this and the amount of time that I spent doing things that I'm sure, you know, my my teenage and 20-year-old nephew and niece could have done in five minutes. Uh, and I would not say that led to some cumulative learning about my ability to program or anything like that. So there, there are times where I think I've now got it figured out how to outsource it appropriately, but there are definitely times in the, anytime I wanted to do something new with the website, um, that, uh, that <laughs> caused me a lot more time than I anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. You're a well-known personality within the investment community and you interview some really impressive, well-known investors. How, how do you, how do you get your guests to come onto the podcast? Are they friends of yours or friends of friends, or are you just shooting out emails and hoping that they'll respond to you or how does that work for yeah, you? I'm curious. I, at the beginning, it was friends. I haven't looked recently, but I think in the first 50 episodes, at least 40 were people I knew. And some I knew really well and some I just knew and had come across um, and knew me. So that got it started. Once it was rolling, you know, far more of the guests now are... If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member become a member, just visit stockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes, and depending on the membership that you purchase, you can even have access to the transcripts. So just go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. Also, if you really enjoyed the music, you should check out Danheim. That's D-A-N-H-E-I-M. Mike at Danheim gave me permission to use the music for the podcast, and so a huge thanks to Danheim. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.